uh, just been completed, this feeding of the 5,000 miracle, and we're all familiar with that where Jesus feeds the 5,000. That's told to us in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, and all the details that take place there. That's given. This, that's now over, and Jesus has ran up the side of this mountain because the people at the miracle, at that site, uh, the 5,000, they want to make Jesus king by force. Now, you need to understand, their idea of Jesus being king and his idea of Jesus being king are two different things. That's so, that's so crucial to me. I meet people all the time who their idea of being a Christian is not my idea of being a Christian. And it's not just semantic. It's not, it's not just opinions. No, we're not talking about that. See, I'm interested in what this thing has to say. See, what does this thing say about being a Christian? And you have 5,000 people that are following Jesus, and we find this, I found this really interesting. You have five, think about this. You have 5,000 people, and scholars say it's probably more. Uh, the, the children aren't counted. Uh, it's perhaps maybe even the women aren't counted uh, in this setting. So you could have upwards, you know, if they have 2.5 kids, you could have, uh, hey, 15,000 people out here at this miracle. Now, think of what they're risking. Now, think about this. Think of what they're risking. They're putting not only their lives in danger, but their families' lives in danger. Do you know what Rome would have done if a whole group of people this size were following around one man saying, you're our king and not Caesar? I mean, that's, that's not trivial. They would, I mean, that was, in fact, by the time you get down to chapters 11 and 12, the leadership of Israel, okay, the Jewish leadership of Israel, they're wanting to put Jesus to death because they're afraid of what all the people are saying. Hey, if they, make, if they keep claiming him to be king, the Romans are going to come and conquer us. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that the people here in this setting are at great, putting themselves at great risk. I mean, when I look at today's church and some of the things that we hear on the radio and books that are written talking about the attributes of Christianity, a lot of what I hear are, you know, it's discipline, it's, it's sacrifice, it's, it's I'm a good person, those kinds of things. All of those qualities are present in this group of 5,000. But it's really important that you know that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with this group. Here's a little bit more of a blunt, perhaps more abrasive way to say it. What if I told you that Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with us in this room? We might hear several of us say, hold on, we're not bad. Not about being, you know, not bad. Well, we come to church every Sunday. Not about coming to church every Sunday. I mean, we give our money. Not about giving your money. All of these attributes are present in this group right here, and Jesus doesn't want anything to do with them. They come and say, hey, we're going to make you king. And Jesus says, I don't want to be your king. Why, why is that? Okay. Why wouldn't Jesus want to be associated with that group? Because there's something beyond all of that stuff. Which is phenomenal. See, there's something beyond just activities. If I could get you to buy that, teens. Oh. The Christianity is beyond just being a good person. It's beyond just not having sex before marriage. It's beyond just not drinking or doing drugs or alcohol or... See, it's beyond that kind of stuff. It's beyond just coming to church on Sunday. We're talking about Christianity. I'm talking about an absolute radical change that takes place in your body. Um, it's so radical that the Bible calls it being born again. See, I'm a, I meet people all the time uh, from my past life. <laughs> Sounds really Hindu. <laughs> uh, it wasn't like I was a frog or anything before. But, I mean, before I was a Christian, I knew people that knew me when I, you know... Uh, when I was a teen and when I was the old Jeremiah. And they talk about me as in terms of being, well, hey, it's good to see you, and I'm glad that you, here it is, they say, I'm glad that you shaped up. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I wouldn't talk about it that way. 
And they're like, well, I know, I know. I'm glad you got your act together. <laughs> Not about getting my act together. Well, I'm glad you buckled down. <laughs> about buckling down. And they're like, well, what happened to you? I'm like, I'm, I'm brand new, man. Same nose, but new management. I'm just, I'm cleansed from the inside out. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a different person altogether. That man is dead, the way that he thinks, the way that he operates, the way that he feels. Is that going on in you? And hey, no pressure on this. I mean, every week we meet people who sleep through the services and teams who don't pay attention, so it doesn't bother me. But don't be deceived. Is that going on in you? Are you different from the inside out? Do you have the drive that he has? That's going, this is the content of the study. This is the content of the passage we're looking at tonight. Verses 16 through 21. The feeding of the 5,000 is ended. Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with those who are there. They're going to make him king. He runs up the side of this mountain and he hides out. Uh, the disciples hang around. They're waiting for him. He doesn't come back down. Uh, they get into the boat. There's no direction. I mean, there's nothing in the passage that tells them that Jesus said to do this. In the other Gospels, there's more information, but here there's not. So basically, you're left with the idea that the disciples, when Jesus doesn't come back, they're like, listen, hey, we're not hanging around all night. We're going to get in the boat. We're going to head over to Capernaum, uh, and we're going to hang out there until, uh, you know, he arrives. That, that's the kind of, that's the impression you're left with the passage. Now, there's a couple things that are really important that we want to look at. First off, John uses, uh, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the Gospels or even more familiar with John, but John's language is really different. When I was in college, <laughs> we talked about this uh, this week, when I was in college, uh, I was really intimidated. I called a buddy of mine tonight right before the service, and I told him, I said, I'll call you tonight about midnight when I'm on the road, about to fall asleep, you can keep me awake. And uh, he said, all right. His wife was tutoring uh, a, a team from the school in calculus. And I was like, dude, calculus. I can't even spell calculus. <laughs> I wasn't great. I, I majored in shop in high school, pretty much. Uh, you know, I, geometry, that was by the skin of my teeth. Just barely got through that kind of deal. Um, I wasn't, the, I wasn't a, a student, you might say. Well, when I went to college, uh, I was nervous because they barely let me in. <laughs> I had a real low GPA, but I was telling them, I was like, I'll study. I'm telling you, I'll study this time. And so um, we had to take Greek, and they wanted us to pick a book to study in Greek. Well, the rumor was, and it's a true rumor, that out of all the Greek manuscripts, this is helpful, out of all the Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, the most simple to read and understand if you're learning Greek is guess what book? John, which is why I put it. <laughs> that's why I picked it. I was like, that's the book for me. Yeah, it's the simple. It's written in little bitty words, and and it's written not. So, I mean, it's not difficult. It's like Paul. Paul's like he's the he's the brain. He's the smart one. He makes up words literally, and so because uh, uh, there's words that he uses in Greek that's not even found in secular Greek. So it's ridiculous. That was beyond me. I stuck with John. But what's unique about John? Now get this. What's unique about John is he takes. This is really important. He takes normal words and he loads them with meaning, with imagery. In other words, you have the facts of a passage, you have the details of the passage, but the meaning is beyond the physical details of the passage. Let me give you an example. In our chapter, it's after our passage, it's in uh, verses 53 through 58. I want you to look at that. Obviously, this is not literal. Okay? 
It's not literal what Jesus is saying here. It's beyond the facts. It's imagery language is what we're calling it. Verses 53 to 58. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. <laughs> now that's not literal. We would agree on that. It's not like here. Take a bite. Okay? <laughs> yep, that's right too. See, it's not what he's talking about. It's not literal. You know, he wasn't encouraging cannibalism. Okay? That we're not talking about. It's, it's the physical details of the chapter, and what John is using is he's using picture language. In other words, he's taking certain words and phrases, and he's loading those with spiritual content. Okay? Yeah, I know, that's exciting, isn't it? Okay, so that's before our passage, but it's not only, uh, that's after our passage, it's not only after our passage, but it's before our passage as well. For instance, if you look in the feeding of the 5,000 theme, you're going to notice around verse 13 that he does the same thing with the 12 baskets. This is what it says, verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, hey, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Now, why do you think he chose to, to, write, to write there 12 baskets? What might that symbolize? Anyone? 12 disciples? 12 starts with the T, these are the tribes. Tribes, very good. Okay, the 12 tribes of? Israel. The whole passage takes on the characteristics of, of the Passover. The whole thing was about the, the leading of the 12 tribes out of Egypt, okay? That's, that's imagery, okay? You still with me? Enjoying this? In our passage, there's imagery as well. I want to focus in on tonight, if you can stay with me. There's, there's some language that he uses here, which I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I'm proposing that's beyond just the physical information of the passage and there's spiritual depth to it. And that language is dark or darkness. This is what it says. Listen, listen to me as I read this. Beginning at verse 16, you can follow along. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into boats and set across, uh, set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. And Jesus, he adds to that, and Jesus had not yet joined them. Now you would say, hey, what's so special about that? By now it was dark. It probably was dark. When they were getting in the boat, evening was coming. Hey, uh, the daylight was fading away. Why, why is it so significant that you would pick out that it's dark? What, you know, what's special about that language? Well, if, now listen to me. If John didn't use that language anywhere else in his Gospels uh, or anywhere else in his writings, I wouldn't think it would be a big deal. But John uses this word that we translate skotia, okay, that's the Greek word. He uses that word a lot. And it literally... What you have, as he talks about it in his writings, there is darkness, and then that's contrasted always with the... Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Okay? If you believe in me, you do not have to walk in. Now, what's he talking about? Hey, you believe in me, and you'll never have any night anymore. Is that what he's talking about? Oh, spiritual content. And so what you have in our passage here is I'm t I'm I want to propose to you that the disciples have found themselves in darkness. Now you would ask me, what is darkness? Well, darkness is talked about specifically, not here in our passage, but it's talked about in 1 John. And I just want to read a couple of verses to you. In 1 John chapter 1, this is what he writes. And this is important for you to hear this. Chapter 1. Uh, beginning at verse 5 of the book of 1 John. Okay? 
This is what he says. This is what he writes, beginning at verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Okay? This is the message. You want to know what the message is, the gospel message, this is it. This is the message we've heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So he establishes, and this is really important, he establishes what darkness is. What's darkness? Whatever God is not. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's not like, well, God is light, and once in a while you can see a thread of darkness. No. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If you're a Christian, you walk in the light, period. If you live in darkness, then you're, and you claim to walk in the light, hey man, you're deceived and you're a liar. Now what you have in our passage, and that's really heavy language, because that tells us, if you and I have darkness in our life, there's a problem there. Wouldn't it be unfortunate to come to church every Sunday, believing we're Christians and yet live in darkness? Wouldn't that be unfortunate? Wouldn't that be... Wouldn't that be sad? I don't want any darkness in my life whatsoever. Well, you'd ask me, what's darkness? And of course I'd say, anything that's not in God. And you're like, yeah, but be more, be more specific. Let me give you a couple examples of that. I want you to flip back with me, if you would, back to uh, John chapter 3. Okay? John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, the whole theme of the first 21 verses is darkness. And you have a couple different uh, basic understandings of what it means to live in darkness. For instance, it begins in chapter 3, and you have this man that's come out to see Jesus. Okay, And this is what it says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now this is what it says. He came to Jesus at night. Now, night. Now, what, what does that mean? Does that mean when he came out at night? And that's probably true because Nicodemus was a leader of Israel. He was a Pharisee. And he had responsibilities for teaching during the day and that kind of thing and responsibilities in the temple. So it probably was likely that he came out at night. But that's not the only meaning to this. For instance, if you would follow with me and look uh, just really quickly at chapter 9, verses 3 and 4... This word night is used, and I find this really neat. Uh, God, it might be displayed. Verse 3 of chapter 9, Jesus is uh, healing the man born blind. Now listen to this. This is what it says. Neither that the disciples say who sinned, this man or, or his parents. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, what's that mean? Well, when it's nighttime, Jesus goes to bed. Sure, yeah, can't work. No, that's what he's talking about. You see how day and night take on spiritual significance. Are you with me on this? 
day and night take on spiritual significance. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, comes out to Jesus, and he comes out to Jesus at night. And what does that mean? Well, he's coming in darkness. He's coming in night. He's coming outside of the sphere, whatever you want to call that. God is over here, and this is what he, how he operates and what he operates in. Nicodemus comes, and he operates in this. This is what I want to talk to you about tonight. Which sphere do you live in? Do you operate in the same sphere that God is, uh, operates in, or do you operate in the sphere that the enemy operates in? Or do you, you might want to say, do you operate in the sphere that God does not operate in? Nicodemus is operating over here. He comes to Jesus at night. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is you begin to go through chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 3 as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He begins to explain what the problem is. And when he explains what the problem is, you see what darkness means. Now, this may be confusing because I can tell by the looks on your faces. But if you stick with me, it begins to come clear. This is what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's walk through this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, and this is what he says, Rabbi, you know, uh, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus comes out and he says, listen, hey, uh, it's evident you're with God. It's evident that, hey, that, that, hey, it's evident that you're with God. It's evident you're a teacher because no one could be doing the things you're doing if God were not with him. We know that. It's interesting what Jesus says. Listen to what he says. In reply, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Okay? You know what I tell you the truth means? We talked about this the other night. In English is not like Greek. In, in English, for instance, we have punctuation. In Greek, there is no punctuation. I found that really interesting when I started taking Greek. They don't have, in Greek, there's no periods, commas, question marks, exclamation points, or the like. Uh, when my wife wants to say something to me, uh, she writes me a note, and she wants to add emphasis to that note, what does she put at the end of the sentence? An exclamation point. If you're like my wife, you would know that she would put two or three exclamation points. It's my wife's personality. Uh, in Greek, they can't do that. They can't emphasize a sentence with punctuation. So do you know how they emphasize a sentence? They will say it more than once. For instance, when they want to emphasize the holiness of God, they just don't say that he's holy. In fact, they don't even say that he's holy, holy. They say that he's holy, holy, holy. Which is like really holy. <laughs> okay? They're emphasizing the holiness of God. Now, in your Bibles, whenever you read, especially in John, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that's actually a translation of two Greek words back to back. Amen, amen. Okay? In some of your translations, it's barely, barely. What Jesus is doing is he's emphasizing what he's saying. Okay? He's emphatic what, what he's saying here. Veins are popping out in his neck. He's standing up like this, and he probably does this. Is, well, however you think he looks. But he's emphasizing in this statement. So this is not casual talk. He leans into Nicodemus' face, and he says, I tell you the truth, man. I'm not, hey, I'm not lying. This is serious business. I tell you the truth, no one, now listen, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. What's going on with Nicodemus? Nicodemus says, listen, hey, I saw you in the temple. It's amazing. God's obviously with you. Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. In other words, you've seen some things, Nicodemus, that you didn't see the big deal. Because no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Nicodemus takes that literally. 
Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? <laughs> can I just go back up in the womb and come? I mean, come on, how's this possible? And Jesus begins to go on and he explains, this is it, this is, this is the point we're getting at. He explains that Nicodemus is living out of the flesh. Okay? And he needs to be born again, listen to this, he needs to be born again and live not out of the flesh, but out of a resource that's beyond the flesh, live out of the spirit. So that, see, Nicodemus' life is the product of his own abilities. He's smart. He's a teacher. He's phenomenal. He's, I mean, he's, he's gifted. He's a leader of Israel. But his life is under the parameters of his own intelligence, of his own resource. Jesus says in verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. See, the kingdom of God, Christianity, is not the product of this. Uh, how's your Christian walk? Oh, I go to church on Sunday. That smells like this. Oh, well, I don't drink, smoke, or chew. That smells like this. Well, how's your walk with Jesus? Well, I've been trying to read my Bible more. It smells like this. Now, is that stuff bad? No, but you can do all that and not be a Christian. Jesus, I mean, Satan knows the Bible. Okay? Satan appears as an angel of light. So we're not talking about just... We're, the, the product of the Christian life is a life that's produced out of the resource of God. Now you're going to say, give me an example of that. He does in the passage. He looks at Nicodemus and basically says, listen, Nicodemus, you can't get in. You're not in. You're missing the boat. And why? What's Nicodemus' biggest problem? Nicodemus. What if I told you that the biggest problem in my life is me? If there's ever a reason and you see me falling flat on my face in sin, you're going to know what the problem is. I took over control and brought him out of control. I took control of my own life. I took control of my bodily drives. I took control of my sex drive. I took control of my finances. I'm under the impression that anything that's produced from myself, anything that comes out of myself leads to death. Flesh produces flesh. I need someone bigger than I am. We talked about this the other night. And those of you who are just visiting here, we talked about the Christian life. Yes, Christian life. <laughs> the Christian life, listen to me. The Christian life is described as the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Anybody know all nine? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and... Self-control. That's the fruit of trying hard, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, buckle down. You ever see, I, I love that. You see Christians who live like that? You know, you know Yeah, they're just disciplined and they're just... You know, would you like to come to church with me? <laughs> no, dude, I'm stressed out enough. Sorry. <laughs> I've got enough problems. The Christian life is not the fruit of like... Christian, the Christian life is the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Self-control is the fruit of cold showers. That's right. Yeah. Your bodily drives as teenagers. Yeah. How, how do you keep that under control? Yeah. Blinders. Never leave your house. Never look. Don't have TV. No. The fruit of the Spirit, self-control, is looking to Jesus, listen to me, and saying, Jesus, would you come down in my life and control what I never could control? Would you come and master what I never could master? And I'm going to tell you, if your bodily drives are out of control, I'm going to tell you the problem. You're in control. 
you haven't dropped dead in that area of your life. You haven't surrendered that area of your life to Jesus. Patience. <laughs> if you're not patient, guess what the problem is? You. <laughs> you're the problem. See, the, the, the product of the Christian life, and this is so basic, the product of the Christian life is not determined by flesh. The product of the Christian life, the attributes of the Christian life are a product of Him. So if you see anything good in me this week, don't, don't come up and say, you're great, Jeremiah. Come up and say, wow, we're so glad we don't get to see you. You drop dead and we love it. Because we like to see Jesus flowing through your life. That's, that's the message. The biggest problem with Nicodemus is Nicodemus. Okay? Now Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, you're worthless. I mean, hey, you're off track. You, I mean, in fact, you're so bad, Nicodemus, that you need to be born all over again. There's, you can't even repair, we can't even repair you. And you know what Nicodemus says to that? Look at verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can this be? What are you talking about? How can that be? I'm a leader of Israel. Jesus says, let me give you an example. This is incredible to me. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're out, but let me give you an example of someone who's in. Listen to this. Verse 10. Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? And then he, again, I tell you the truth language. Em emphatic. I tell you the truth, and he says this. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. Let me ask you a question. Who's the we? For the longest time, I thought the we was Jesus and God, Jesus and the Father. But that's not true. Jesus doesn't use that language in this gospel. When he says we, he's referring to who's with him in the upper room, which is Jesus and the twelve disciples. Now, if you could get this, if you could get this, this, will, this is incredible. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you're in darkness. What does that mean? You're living out of your own resource. You're living out of your own abilities. The product of your life is produced by you and your brains and your intelligence. You're in darkness and you're not in. But he says, let me tell you who is in. And he draws his attention to 12 ignorant fishermen. And he says, see the 12 losers over there? Yeah. They're in and you're not. He says, we speak of what we know. We speak of what we see. You follow the 12 disciples and you find that they're in. And why are they in? Because they're smart? Because they're intelligent? Because the disciples are experiencing things that they could not... I mean, there's no way they can experience. In fact, in a couple chapters, and I'm almost done, in a couple chapters, the disciples uh, are gathered around Jesus, and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they're saying a lot of different things. Peter says, I say you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, no man has revealed this to you, but you know this because of my Father in heaven. And so, G and so Peter knows things that are not the product of his own intelligence. Peter knows things from the product of... You go into the book of Acts, the first five chapters, you have these twelve disciples that were wimps before, and now they're raging heroes, and they're, and they're preaching, and thousands of people are being saved, and there's miracles. Now, how is that possible? They went to college. That's what it is. Yeah, they went to college and, and they got some speaking skills. They bought some of my Sunday school curriculum. That, that's what it was. And, well, no. What happened to the 12 disciples? Hey, man, empowered by the Holy Spirit. What am I trying to tell you? What is, what's, what's darkness? Living in darkness means you are confined. You are living in the sphere of your own abilities. We take interns every summer. I'm looking for another one. I'm looking for another one. I've got two interns for the summer. I'm looking for one more. 
we, it's amazing. We have a number of people that come up to us, and it's interesting when people apply. We have a bunch of people apply. And some of the people who apply come to us and say, well, you could really use me. Oh, yeah. I can sing. Play guitar. Piano, too. And organ. Same time. And, uh, I mean, I've got talent, and I have speaking ability. And uh, I've done that kind of thing. I've taught in my school, and, you know, and I look at them, and that's all true, and it's not necessarily bad. But then I have another one come up to me, and they're shaken. They're nervous. They're borderline crying. Because when they step up in front of people, they go, <laughs> they can't talk, and they look like, you know, ridiculous. And, and they come up, and they're, I think I've got a call to minister, and it's probably wrong. And I look at them, and they go, oh, you're the one I've been looking for. You're the one I've been looking for. Why? Because there's no possible way that they can pull it off. And unless Jesus does it, that dude doesn't have a chance. <laughs> That's the one I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone that does not... And see, again, hey, nothing wrong with talent, but I'm telling you, and hey, mark my words on this, your talent can be one of your greatest weaknesses because you'll rely on that talent, not him. And you can be a great speaker and not be... You can be a phenomenal singer and not... Because that's not bad. Hey, sing. Great. We love that. But, see, darkness is the... It, the darkness is the sphere of our own abilities. Get this. Gotta get this. Darkness is the sphere of our own abilities and our own resource. Okay? Light is, is the sphere where I'm living a life that is produced not by my hands, not by my abilities, but by Him. We need to love to live that kind of life. Get everything in your life, not the product of who you are, but the product of who He is. It's not dependent upon my talent or my abilities or what I can produce, but my life is the product of who He is. Wouldn't it be phenomenal to live like that? Just to constantly rest and rely upon Him. That's the idea of darkness. Okay? So, and there's two ways, now get this, there's two ways to not be in darkness. There's two ways. There's two ways not to be in darkness. One way is, I should say, there's two ways to find yourself in darkness. One is by error, and the other is through rebellion. Nicodemus is not in rebellion. Hear me on this. Nicodemus is not in rebellion. In fact, he's coming out seeking Jesus and saying, hey, I want in, I want in. He's been in error. What does that mean? He's living out of his own resource. Please stay with me. A couple of minutes. He's living in error. Well, he's not bad. I hear that all the time. Uh, I'm not bad, Jeremiah. Well, what if not being a Christian wasn't about good or bad? What if you could be good and not be a Christian? See, you can be, you can not be a Christian and not necessarily have a rebellious spirit about you, just living in error. Nicodemus was not rebelling. He's living in error. But you come to the end of That's one way. You can find yourself in darkness just by living in error. What's living in error mean? Hey, I'm relying upon myself and not him. One way. The other way is rebellion. And you see that, and this just takes two seconds, you see that at the end of this whole section with, with Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Look with me at verse 21. No, that's not true. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus says, this is the verdict. Get this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. 
Okay? And then he goes on and actually says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light because their deeds are evil. What I want to talk to you about tonight is really simple. I want to give you the opportunity tonight. I don't, I don't think uh, entire sanctification is an, a, 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 an I'm a Nazarene fellow. So that's language that we use. Not necessarily biblical language, though it is a biblical concept, but we're talking about, for those of you Nazarenes, Entire sanctification is not an arrival point. In other words, yeah, I had two knocks on my head at the altar and I'm arrived. No, 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 no. I don't even think you start to grow until you reach that. Okay? In fact, what I found in my own life is I'll be living for him and running after Jesus and just being Jeremiah. And uh, things will happen in my life where he will reveal areas of my life that were not rebellion, but I've been living out of my own strength and my own resource. Do you know what he calls me to do at that point? Throw myself down at the altar and say, Jesus, I want you to come and fill that area of my life. And I want your resource to flow here, not my own. It wasn't, it wasn't a rebellion thing. Hey, it wasn't a sin thing. It wasn't like I'm going... Ey. But I found in an area of my life I'm living out of my own resource, my own ability. What I want to call you to tonight is I want to call you to a radical dependence upon Jesus. Which means that this is not just for, you know the teens, or this is just for those who don't come to church. I would imagine, wouldn't it be sad to come to church for 60 years of your life and never grow, never have sought, never have been down to the altar for like 40 years? Wouldn't that be unfortunate? I don't think that's possible as a Christian. But I wonder tonight, are there those of you who are here who's really wondered what we're talking about in terms of Christianity? This is what we're talking about. Anything that smells of yourself, it's got to go. So you're saying I shouldn't play football anymore. No, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. Just be Jesus out on the football field. Say, Jesus, I invite you in my life. Hey, come and, come and control what I never could control. Come and resource my life where I, I can't resource it. Hey, are you listening to me? Jesus, I give you... You want a, you want a dangerous prayer? Jesus, I give you the right to move in my life. And whatever does not look like you, whatever I'm leaning upon that's not you, I give you the right to take it away. When I was first saved, one of the biggest issues I, like, as an immediate Christian, it was like two or three months after I was a Christian that Jesus dealt with, is I had an addiction in my life, it was cigarettes. I smoked for about ten years of my life. Okay? I gave my life to Jesus, I still smoked. I mean, people at the church were addicted, addicted to coffee, why, why can't I be addicted to cigarettes? So anyway... Um, this is a little Nazarene humor you may not have got it. Anyway, so I just kept smoking. And Jesus began to deal with me in my life. And he said, Jeremiah, every time you're stressed, every time you're pressured, every time you're under the gun, every time you're in a tight corner, guess what you reach for? Cigarettes. And that was Jeremiah's ability to calm his nerves, Jeremiah's ability to lean, all that kind of stuff. It's one of the first things that I released to him. As I begin to grow in my walk, and as I begin to walk with him, I find that there are other things that I lean upon. One of the most recent catastrophic events that have taken place in my life is we had a, a little baby. Oh my. <laughs> what that will reveal in your life. And he's teaching me new ways of leaning on him. I want to I close tonight with opening up, opening up the uh, altar up here stage. You don't have to kneel. You can just lean up here. Hey, you may not be into this and no pressure. 
no pressure. But if you have areas of your life that smell like yourself, look at me. If you have areas of your life that don't look like Him and you know it, if you have areas of your life that just reek of yourself, that you're leaning on things that are not Him, you have things in your life that don't look like Him, you have areas of your life that are dark, you have 12 disciples that are out on the boat. It's amazing to me. You have 12 disciples that are out on the boat and they find themselves in darkness. Why? Were they in rebellion? No. Then why were they in darkness? Jesus wasn't there. Well, I'm not bad. Do you have any area of your life where Jesus is not there? You ever sit in math class on Monday at school? You with me? You ever sit in math class Monday at school and Jesus not be there? What would happen if you took Jesus on your date with you? Any, anywhere in your life that Jesus is not present, there's darkness. Because anywhere, anywhere you're not leaning on Jesus, you're leaning on your own. Which group you in? Jesus, we love you tonight. I'm not a bad person. Uh, I'm pretty straight as an arrow, probably. I'm a very narrow individual. But I'm under the impression, Jesus, that there are areas of my life that you get squeezed out of. Forgive me. Would you come in my life, Jesus, and just pour yourself over all the areas that I I reach out and take control of and I don't surrender to you? In the conversations that I have with my wife, could you resource that area of my life? Being a father, could you come somehow and be a father through me to my son? Could I just release control of that little guy to you? Could you come and be my patience, Jesus, in the midst of stressful circumstances? Could I release that to you? Could you teach me not to rely on my own talents and abilities, but to, to lean on a resource that's far beyond me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm under the impression that he's dealing with some of you tonight. Maybe he'd like you to take you to a whole new level of dependence upon him. Maybe you're not bad. Maybe you come to church. Maybe you're not into drugs or drinking or partying. You're one of the more good kids at school. Uh, maybe you just don't look like him. Maybe you're not wrapped up into him. Maybe he's not the absolute center focal point of your life. We're not going to tarry long tonight. I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat. Mom, dad, teen. Would you come and say, Jesus, I give you full right in my life tonight. I don't want anything else in, in my life looking like me. I don't want anything else looking like me. Anyone here tonight want to go to that level of intimacy with Him? That depth of relationship? If you do, would you come? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed and no one's looking around. Got anything in your life that doesn't look like Him? I'm going to have a time of seeking and then I want to talk to you at the end of the service about a mission that we are involved with overseas. But let's, let's seek tonight. Are there areas of your life that, and again, I don't, hey, I don't know your background. I don't, half of you I don't even know because you're not from this church. I haven't even seen you this week. Do you have any areas of your life where you're just tired of looking like yourself? 
you fall in the same things over and over and over? Would you just be willing to say, Jesus, would you come and would you get into that? Would you solve that issue? Would you, re- would you pour yourself in that area of my life? I- I'm tired of looking like that. I'm tired of that attitude coming out. I'm tired of seeing that way. I'm tired of being the way that I've been, Jesus. This is what invites you in this area of my life tonight. Wouldn't it be phenomenal if we just no longer looked like Him? If we just look, if we no longer look like us, we just look like Him. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? I trust you're going to respond and see. Jesus, we love you tonight. Come, Lord Jesus. Light up my world. I find myself so many times like the disciples toiling across the lake in my own resource, my own abilities. And then here you come, walking on the water, and I'm dazzled because there's a resource in you that's so far beyond me and my little petty stuff. I'll give you the right tonight, Jesus, to come and flow yourself into my life. Pour yourself into my life tonight, Jesus. Remove whatever belongs to me. Remove whatever smells of me. I'd love for my son as he grows up not to see Jeremiah, but to see Jesus living in my life. Could I just be a a, a display of who you are? May his life not be the product of his father, but be the product of a divine hand that's stretching through his dad's life. Could I be the demonstration of what a Christian man is to look like in a home, in a car, on a playground, in an argument. Hey, I just give you that opportunity tonight. Many of us are seeking here, and I pray that you just have your way in our life. Pray that those who are seeking you and praying and just inviting you into areas of their life, Jesus, where it's been constant defeat, constant struggle. I just, I pray, Father, that you would just flow the power and authority that resided in your Son. You flow that into their life pry their fingers off that area of their life. Teach us to trust you.